is thrilled to have Satin Flower Nurseries from Victoria, British Columbia as our first sponsor and episode participant. Thank you, Satin Flower Nurseries, for sponsoring this episode. Marcos Trinidad, Urban Nature, Human Nature. This is Kristen Muskelly from Satin Flower Nurseries, native plants, seeds, and consulting located on the southern tip of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, within the traditional unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples. Our native plant nursery aims to inspire and empower people to connect with nature through native plants. Thank you, Stefan, for including us as a sponsor for Nature Revisited, our favorite nature podcast. We appreciate and are inspired by your work to bridge people with nature. We share a similar mandate. Satinflower Nurseries has been built around a respect for local ecosystems and a drive to inspire you to help nature. We grow exclusively Indigenous plants to our region and welcome visitors year-round to our main location. Our nursery offers potted native plants, native seeds, and consultation services. We also host an array of workshops and events related to growing native plants and restoration. To learn more about us, visit satinflower.ca. Thanks again, Stefan, for your fantastic podcast. Marcos Trinidad is the director of the Audubon Center at Debs Park in Los Angeles, where he is working with a growing community of volunteers, youth, and community partnerships, bringing nature to the urban setting. Marcos was born and raised in Northeast LA and is an avid birdwatcher. Marcos says that he is most complete when he is camping with his family. I asked Marcos if he would join me to talk about his connection with nature and in particular, nature in the urban world. I also wanted Marcos to share with us his journey from Northeast LA to the Audubon Center at Debs Park, as well as his new project, a podcast called Human Nature. Thank you for joining us. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and this is Nature Revisited. Let's start at the beginning. Share with us, if you would, what it was like for you to grow up in Northeast LA. Was nature an important part of your childhood? Thank you, Stefan, for yeah, having me on the show and speak to you. Like you, you mentioned, I am from Northeast LA, an area called Highland Park. When I think back to, to childhood in, in, in Highland Parque and Highland Park, it, <laughs> I can't help but smile because it was such a great place to grow up. We have a lot of hills, a lot of trees, and a significant amount of culture. And I think being able to grow up in a space that has those things, it's, it's very enriching. I think with 
with painting the picture of Highland Park in this area, particularly like the location in Los Angeles, it's not really what most folks think of when they think of L.A. We're just a few miles northeast of downtown where you have huge uh, skyscrapers, a ton of concrete, all those things. As, as you get a few miles away, you start to get into some hills, patches of open space, and the L.A. River and the Arroyo Seco, which are both channeled waterways. And really growing up had a lot to do with, with exploring those areas. For me, it wasn't a way of like, hey, I'm going to go out and explore nature. It was really to get away from parents, getting away from adults. And so that childhood was, was naturally in these spaces, unsupervised play, which I think really added to the curiosity that children should have. So it, it was a great experience for me. As you say, there's a lot of concrete and blacktop in L.A. You know, what inspired you to search out those natural places of the city? You know, most of us, when we think of cities, we don't think of nature or natural places. What are some of your, your early memories of those places? You, you don't think of, of nature as the first thing, uh, especially when you think of L.A. When I think back to, to childhood and, and, and those early interactions with nature, they had a lot to do with play and it had a lot to do with me and friends just getting out and walking the hills, walking from house to house to, to see who can play and, and run around. One memory that I have that is, is definitely something that, that I constantly go back to is having a treehouse. Not a lot of folks have treehouses in, in our neighborhood, and this wasn't even a treehouse that was in my yard. This was a treehouse that was located in a pick-and-save parking lot in Highland Park. It was a ficus tree, really big. Some friends and I were able to acquire some lumber, and we had gone up there and built a, a platform with, I think, two walls, <laughs> and that was our treehouse. It just so happened that that there were these these pockets of nature that we were able to retreat in. I don't think... For me at that time, it was an active an active decision of saying, hey, you know what, I think I'm going to go retreat into nature because that's where I feel, you know, really great. <laughs> it was more like, hey, if I could get out to these spaces, no one's there and, and just play. So when did you first kind of realize that you had this deep connection to nature, that it was more than just play? I think for me... When I realized that there was something a bit more to connecting to nature or reconnecting, as, as I like to say, is when I was in the military. I joined the military at a really young age. Both of my parents had to sign papers releasing me into the military because I was 17. Going to Fort Knox, Kentucky, basic training was one of those moments when, when I really experienced vast open space. After basic training, moving to southern Germany, where it was just acres and acres of open space and having to, <laughs> to walk through these different landscapes of hills and 
a ton of trees, and it was basically what we now refer to as backpacking. <laughs> but for, for me at that time, it was ruck marching. And we would hike into these areas, and there was a few moments that I remember reaching a peak or just setting up our camp and taking in the, the scenery and taking in that there were all these things into play. There were birds, there were insects, there were small mammals, and just having that connection. And I think for me, I didn't realize it in that moment, but later coming back to Los Angeles and sitting under a tree in, the, in my parents' backyard and having that same interaction with the tree that was in my parents' backyard, which is now in Los Angeles, very busy place, being able to connect and have the same feeling. It started to teach me that it is possible to be able to connect to nature in many different ways, and I didn't need to have that that open space area to, like that was not the only way to have that experience. And that ended up really being able to to follow me, and, and I learned how to do that. So when I was back in L.A., I was able to tap into that connection again. How does your Latino culture, how did it help shape that relationship with nature? And, and how did it help shape the career path that you chose? So I, I think when, when it comes to culture and what I do now— there, there's a couple of things there. So just culturally, growing up, most of the males in my family work outdoors. And most of them are in construction or painting or some sort of, of service that allows you to be outdoors most of the time. And for us, a lot of our family gatherings are outside as well. We use a lot of public space. For my family, a lot of our birthday parties happen to be at the public park where there's grass, there's a ton of trees, there's play structures. There is space that we can gather because there's also a lot of us. So when it comes to how did that influence my my current career path, it, it, it like for me, I didn't feel that there was a direct connection because a lot of the outdoor experiences I had were dirt bike riding and exploring in a very different way. As I got into conservation and through the science, a lot of that was through being able to, to study geology and anthropology and, and understand how people have relationships with, with the land, but also understand what the land is doing and how things are formed. So for me, having this cultural lens of of being able to have so many different experiences outdoors, I learned that conservation is going to be successful when we're able to connect to all types of different audiences and not just that that conservation or or green-minded environmentalist. Uh, we're going to need to talk to folks that are out there dirt bike riding and jet skiing and boating, as well as be able to talk to the folks that are canoeing and kayaking and hiking. So I think with my 
cultural lens, it's it's allowed me to make these connections that have not been successful with the traditional conservation movement because the conservation movement does a really good job at placing value on some outdoor activities versus other outdoor activities. So when did you first realize that you wanted a career in the environmental field? I was very young and I, I had been studying geology and, and anthropology and I started working for a local nonprofit in Los Angeles that was building parks and planting trees all over Northeast LA. And a lot of this work had led me to the Los Angeles River in a different capacity. I started to do the work, apply what I was learning in school, and started to form these ideas of of why we were we were building these parks in and setting the intention for what this means for our communities. And what I felt, I guess the turning point was being able to connect those parks with the communities that we were building them for. And for me at that time, I was I was leading a crew of of youth and teaching them how to work. I was teaching them work ethic and how to use a shovel, how to dig, how to plant. I think just all of those different things connecting simultaneously as well as being out in nature. This, These were pocket parks along the LA River. It really hit me and it was a way that I was able to connect one to the younger me that was on the LA River, but also set some direction for myself and for younger community members. And I think that is when I made the shift into really being able to study conservation and the environmental work that was going on in our neighborhood and really plan out a a pathway. What were some of the other opportunities you had before you became director? Of the Audubon Center. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you asked that. It was, it, it was a long road. I was so willing to learn. I wanted to learn it all. I wanted to do it all. So for me, a lot of volunteer opportunities had opened up, and I was taking everything. It didn't matter what it was, or which organization it was with. I wanted to be able to get as much experience to see where where those experiences would take me. I w- had volunteered at the Natural History Museum and vertebrae paleontology and just working on these 10 million-year-old uh, sperm whales that were actually found in my neighborhood and then being able to serve as a, a biology tech up in Alaska as part of the Student Conservation Association, uh, going up in the Tongass, salmon stream restoration, all of these things, which led me to getting a job with the Forest Service doing that work. Bringing it back home to Los Angeles, how can I be an environmentalist living in L.A.? It was almost like an oxymoron. My experience in, in Alaska allowed me to to view conservation in a very different way and and how people use resources and which resources should be prioritized and started to really focus in on urban forestry. And to me, that was a direct action. It was something that we could work on as a community, as a city, as a state to push community members 
to do something. Planting trees was, I think, a priority for me at at the time, and it's understanding that we we need to plant the right trees in the right locations. I am grateful for for being able to work with amazing organizations, Northeast Trees, Tree People, which I currently work with as well. I work with Tree People and the Audubon Society. And then I also am extremely grateful for for the work I've been able to do with, with Audubon. But before going to Audubon, it was a lot of urban forestry and mountain forestry. Before we get to the Audubon Center, I've been told that you are a serious bird watcher. <laughs> so how long have you been bird watching? And share with us, for, for those who don't bird watch, what makes it so fascinating? I've been bird watching for about close to close to 20 years now. And a lot of that has come in, in different phases where it was something to do because you can only stare at, at rocks for so long. You know, you can only look at the tree for so long until you start noticing the birds and all the other insects and life that trees uh, uh, sustain. I think when I really made that shift, the bird that really pulled me into going after not just uh, a job in bird conservation, but that drive that that bird watchers have to learn more about birds. I was working on a park along the LA River and we were we were building a, a pocket park. And I looked up and I was taken back by this huge bird. I, I can tell it was something special immediately. I knew it was not a hawk. I didn't know which bird it was at that time. And I would ask around anyone that was around me when I would see this bird, you know, like, hey, does anyone know what that bird is? Could not identify it. One day I was in a bookstore and I come across a Sibley's field guide. And then I see it. I see a picture of this bird that I have had already developed a relationship. I knew what time it was going to come flying down the river uh, I knew the colors. I knew the band that it had over its eyes. Everything about the way the bird looked and how it would fly and even the behavior. I had already made this connection with this bird. I just didn't know the name of it. I didn't know that it was an osprey. I didn't know that its primary diet was fish and that there was enough fish in the LA River to sustain this osprey's life. So that process of making that connection with this bird, the relationship that I developed with, with this bird, and then that process of being able to find a resource, find a book, read up on it, and then learn these facts. I think for me, develop this this connection and this relationship with nature and experiences and and fact and art and all these beautiful things all together because it was now becoming a part of my behavior. It's something that that would drive me. And I think from that point, it just, I was motivated to wake up in the morning. I wanted to learn all the birds in my neighborhood. I wanted to travel to the places that I had been before 
but now open to the experiences of watching birds there. So it, it was a whole new world for me. The more that I learned about birds, the more I learned about my community. I learned about the health of my community. I learned about the habits of my community because birds can be indicator species. They can tell us so much about our communities. If you know enough about a particular bird, you start to know their eating habits. You start to know which plants sustain their life, where they build their nests, where they they raise their young. Then you start to learn about the plants that are sustaining that bird. And then you realize that, wow, in order to have that particular plant or that habitat, the soil needs to be healthy. And for the soil to be healthy, that means there needs to be the lack of these pollutants in the neighborhood. So if you're only seeing a particular type of bird in your neighborhood, that is telling you something about your community. I often talk to folks and ask them about the birds they see in their neighborhood, and I always get, oh, we only see pigeons. And they say that in in a negative way. But what that tells me is pigeons are survivors. This is telling us about our community. So for me, that relationship, that ability to start to see these stories and, and understand them is what really draws me in and motivates me to share all of that with folks that may not have that connection in the same way. You, you've been the director of the Audubon Center at Debs Park for five years now. I believe you were the youngest director to be appointed to that position. What is its mission and what are some of the ways it's trying to accomplish it? Yeah, at one point, I believe I was the youngest center director at, at the time. I think now that I've, I've aged a little bit, we might, we might have some younger folks in there. We haven't done a, a survey uh, recently. We are a nature center that is part of one of the largest conservation organizations in the country. And with that comes a network of experience, dedication, passion, all of these great things that my coworkers and colleagues contribute to to our organization. But also with that comes years and years of baggage that the conservation movement is carrying along from doing work in a very particular way. And what I mean by that is... We're one of the oldest organizations in the, in the country, one of the oldest conservation organizations in the country. When this organization got started, I highly doubt that they would have had someone like me, ball-headed, brown-bearded guy, running a center. So with that comes this shift in how we, we look at conservation, who is a conservationist, what work is is being prioritized also comes a lot of damage control. But what I find so fascinating and so rewarding 
is being able to work with people that are extremely passionate about changing that narrative and and being able to do the work that they're passionate about and share that with audiences that have traditionally been ignored or neglected. So with the Audubon Center at Debs Park, our goal is to be a center, a community center, a hub for conservation work that is culturally relevant to the Latino community. And the way we do that is by placing value in the neighborhood and understanding that the value of the community, we as an organization are privileged to be a part of. We need the community more than the community needs the organization. And it's hard for an organization to to really grasp that. And I'm grateful that the organization has because it shifted the conversation in a way that allows us to move forward in a direction that is inclusive of our neighborhood. Some of the things that we're doing that might be a little different is understanding that as the community comes in, that they are already bringing value and understanding of outdoor space. Even though they may not hike or bird watch or kayak down a river or um, conquer a mountain, their use of outdoor space is still valuable. And that can teach us something because the birds that are flying over their backyard or the birds that are flying over their party in the public park are still the birds that we appreciate that are flying into our center. So the connection and the ability to to talk about these things and and share these things is really key and is it's what drives our center and our goals in being able to communicate about nature in an urban environment. So one of the places that you have really tried to make a difference in your career is with environmental injustice. And that is a phrase that I believe a lot of people are not completely familiar with or completely understand. So can you kind of give us an idea, maybe try to define it, and then give us some examples that you have come to know, particularly in L.A.? Some clear examples are air quality, water quality. When we look at impacts of climate change, which neighborhoods are suffering the most of of increased temperatures. A lot of this goes into play with being able to look at demographics of neighborhoods. It's usually in neighborhoods that have traditionally been ignored and uh, underserved. So when we look at being able to have an equitable distribution of resources, we're not just looking at social services. We're looking at tree plantings. We're looking at bicycle lanes. We're looking at efficient public transportation. We're looking at all these resources. We're also looking at housing. And one thing that is a huge issue, most of the Northeast LA neighborhoods, if not all of them, I would say all of them, are experiencing a shortage of affordable housing. A lot of the the resources that are being added to these communities are being added because 
the communities need them. But by the time the the resources are given to the community, the residents that they're supposed to benefit have been displaced. One clear example of that 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 we point to is the neighborhoods along the LA River where they need trees, they need bicycle lanes, they need affordable housing. One particular area is Cypress Park, Glassout Park, Elysian Valley area had a lot of huge condos and investment of of housing. This was all market rate housing. In addition, we were building parks and and adding these these beautiful bicycle lanes to go up and down the river. One thing that we had noticed with our community as we were helping build and restore habitat, our community members started to voice concern, but also frustration and anger and confusion because they didn't understand why they should clean and build a better environmentally friendly neighborhood if it was only going to be for someone else and not them because they would soon not be able to to afford living in that space. For us as an organization, we looked at our role and our role was us building these beautiful parks and continuing to build habitat because we wanted to support habitat of, of wildlife. But also we can see the, the contribution that goes beyond that in, in terms of, of increasing the property value. And even though we were not directly responsible for the displacement, we can see the connection. So what we had done as Audubon Society is reached out to a number of organizations that we wanted to partner with and organizations reached out to us to uh, form a group that would apply for funding to establish and and develop a anti-displacement toolkit on green infrastructure. And what that meant was we were able to list all sorts of ways that a city and conservation organizations and neighborhood councils could work together to help slow, stop, and prevent displacement of, of community members when it, when it comes to uh, establishing green space or park space or open space in, in the neighborhoods along the LA River. So for us, that was a direct action that we were able to take. I don't think anyone expected Audubon to, to lead that, that charge. I don't even think we expected to lead that charge. It was something that we were able to accomplish with the help of a number of partners that, that we relied on heavily because they were the professionals in affordable housing and all of those issues that were not or that are not typically a conservation issue. Talk about how nature gives those communities a sense of place, a sense of belonging in the world, and particularly in the urban setting. I mean, that's what it really comes down to is that sense of place. Yeah, I think when people are able to establish a connection to 
a place that brings them joy, a place that brings them comfort, and a place that is engaging to them. They develop a relationship that that forms forms this bond. And what I mean by that is if a person has a backyard or a front yard or even a balcony that they can add plants to and be able to witness visitors coming to their space because if you have a plant somewhere, nature will find nature. Bugs or insects will find you know, places to, to live. Birds will find that flower. Bees will find that flower. So what I think is really special about nature in a city is that nature is finding a way to thrive. We have to actively go out of our way to make sure that we're making these connections because we have have spent so much time disconnecting. And, and I don't think we've made an active decision to disconnect from nature. It's just that we've been so occupied with technology and daily life and stress and and everything that's going on in the world that we've disconnected. And for me, providing opportunities for folks to come out to the center or folks to come out and and learn about California native plants and learn about ecosystems and learn about those services that they provide is a way of restoring plants and habitat on the land, but it's also a way for people to restore their connection to the land. And I think that is where the magic happens. When we start to explore and witness that magic, we start to be in a situation where we can experience the magic within our own lives and our own connections and our own relationships with each other and other people. So if we're able to do that in a city environment, that means we're able to get along in a city environment and we're able to to really find joy in in these spaces that that seem really disconnected from each other. In your in your work, are you finding particularly in, maybe in young people that there is this climate change anxiety? And how do you try to encourage people to make a difference, to change that? I think climate change anxiety is real. And it has a lot to do with, I feel, the lack of understanding what climate change means and what our roles are. To me, climate change should equal behavior change. As the climate changes, our behavior change. We know what we have to do. It's just we are unwilling to do it. So anytime we continue to do something that is not going to be of benefit to to our health or or to our environment, of course that's going to give you anxiety. But the answer to that is to be able to change our own behavior. I think one thing that we're, we have to constantly remind ourselves is that we're powerless over people, places, and things. So if we can focus on the things that we actually can control, if we understand our sphere of influence and how we can move to 
direct action, I think you're able to find a space that you're doing what you can and then you start to tap into that joy that nature brings and it puts you in a very different mindset. But I can't possibly worry about what my neighbor's doing or what folks are doing in in other states because I can't control any of that. So I think really understanding how climate change is going to impact our communities is one part of the equation. The other part is what we have control over in our own behavior. You know, all cities are different. They have their own uniqueness. How might you share with other people outside of L.A. uh, some ideas on how they can discover the unique nature in the cities where they live? One of the easiest ways to experience nature in your city is to start with birds. Birds are the one wild animal that we can interact with every day. I mean, you you literally have to go out of your way not to interact with a bird. I mean, close up all the windows, cover your ears, cover your eyes, not to see or hear a bird. What I like to encourage folks to do is, is to see who... Who are your visitors? Who comes by your house? What are the birds you see? What are they doing? What are those behaviors? And you understand that they are living within a city just like you. They are able to find nature. They are able to adapt and then start paying attention to those things. The other thing is, what is our nighttime like? You know, the lights turn off and then nature starts to to come out at night. A lot of nature in that exist in a city happens at night because that's when people go away. They, the, we're in our house, we're getting ready to go to sleep, and then all the other types of wildlife start to, to, to wake up and start to interact and happen. I always encourage folks to open up to observation. If you see a particular bird every day, take note. What are the behaviors? Is there any interaction between you and that bird? Does that bird realize that you're the same human that he, that they see every day? And then you start to develop a relationship with nature that I think exists in every city. So let's talk about your latest project, your podcast. I love the name, Human Slash Nature. When did you first think of doing it? And what is the focus? Yeah, this is the the latest project. It it definitely is a passion project. I I love working on it, and I am so grateful for the team that I get to work with. This was initiated by my executive producer Antonia Sarajido. You know, you ever think about a podcast? Is you know, a podcast something you ever want to do, or you ever think about hosting? And at that time, I had zero interest. Never thought about it, never considered it. But the passion that she had for being able to create a podcast on nature in in the urban environment was so infectious. And I think going through that process of uh, going into the fields, telling a story, being able to build this relationship with nature in an urban environment and communicate that, and then listening to the final product, I was I was sold. I, I just could not believe 
I'm like, wow, is like that that's really me. And I'm like, what did you what did you guys do? <laughs> it is all about nature that exists in the urban environment. And one episode we have is on bats. And who would have thought there are a ton of bats that exist in Los Angeles and that you can go to a Dodger game and you can watch bats fly around the Dodger game. You can go on a hike in Palos Verdes and possibly see the most beautiful butterfly because this butterfly is also known to be the rarest butterfly in the world. Just finding these really great stories that exist in our neighborhood and amplifying them to encourage people to make those connections in their neighborhood uh, and, and to know that you don't have to travel a great distance to this big, you know, vast open space. You don't need to go to Yosemite. You don't need to go to Appalachians to have this nature experience because it exists in your neighborhood. Now, don't get me wrong, get out as much as you can, go to Yosemite, go to the Appalachian, but don't feel that that's the only time you get to decompress and have a, a nature experience. enjoyed my conversation with Marcos Trinidad. The music for this episode is Sunflower by Santana. You can follow Nature Revisited on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and our website. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, Remember, we are nature.